0: Everybody is worried. I mean, if you look to, to the television today, uh, you know, for 10 days, we see something called Egypt in crisis.
1: You know, you know. Well, we need to put an end to that.
0: Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg.
1: And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Today is Friday, February 4th, and that was Mohamed el you heard at the top. He's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and he was talking about the situation in Egypt.
0: On the show today, we're going to talk about that situation in Egypt and specifically why the Egyptian military is so far preventing bloodshed in the streets of Cairo. Part of the reason, of course, they stand with the people, they support the people's freedom, but also they sell the people lots of stuff. Today on the show, the Egyptian military incorporated guns, tanks, but also dishwashers, bottled water, resort hotels. The military runs a lot of businesses, and we're going to hear all about that. But first, of course, the Planet Money Indicator with our own Jacob Goldstein. Alex, I really got torn up today about
2: the indicator, and the bottom line is... For what I believe is the first time ever, there is no planet money indicator. What? (laughs) It's unprecedented. It's it's unprecedented, and it's particularly painful for me today because we have today what is probably right now the single most important monthly economic report that we get every month. That's the jobs report for January, and obviously there are these two huge indicators staring me in the face, right? One
0: is... Taunting you,
2: really. Yeah, they're they're laughing at me. (laughs) (laughs) One is the unemployment rate for January. The other one is the number of... Of jobs the economy added during the month. But the problem is these two potential indicators, they totally contradict each other. They don't make any sense. On the one hand, number of jobs added, 36,000. This is a horrible number. This is not even enough to keep up with population growth, much less to drive down the unemployment rate. But lo and behold, the unemployment rate fell, fell a
0: huge amount from 9.4 percent all the way to 9 percent. So that is sort of crazy. Like, So we have a horrible jobs number, and then we have a great unemployment rate number, and that shouldn't be happening. So what's going on?
2: Well, it's a mess. I mean, the, the short version, it's a mess. The longer version is this. The jobs picture probably is not as awful as that 36,000 number would suggest. Also, the jobs picture is probably not as promising as that big drop in, in unemployment would suggest. So if we look first at the, at the jobs number, that 36,000 jobs number, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that bad weather in January kept a lot of people out of work. We can't figure out exactly how much this is, but, but pretty clearly the numbers would have been better if, if not for those storms. So, so yeah, sure, that matters for people for January. But what we really want to understand here is, is the long-term picture. And it's pretty clear that when the weather gets better we're going to see a
0: big rebound okay so the 36,000 not as bad as it seems you're doing the reverse of what you normally do you're finding a silver lining behind the cloud but now I'm sensing that the good number where the unemployment rate fell from 9.4 to 9 which is a huge jump. what's wrong with that you can't possibly find something bad in that can you don't well, say it that way because you know. <laughs> I'm <laughs> underestimating your power. Huh? <laughs> uh, you, you know that I
2: can and you know that I have. So and let's you not will. play games here. This is actually even wonkier. I mean, there's various things sort of bouncing around in the unemployment rate, but a big chunk of this drop came from what was essentially a statistical adjustment that the government did to the population numbers it uses, right? Like super f- deep in the weeds. But it matters and it's definitely part of what's going on here, part of why we saw this big drop in in the unemployment rate.
1: All right, so where does that leave us? Should we be happy, sad,
2: Uh, Well, you know, so if we step back and think long term, clearly the jobs picture is bad. I mean, we knew that before this report came out. And no matter what, unless it was like all-time great report, it was still Mm -hmm. going to be a pretty bad picture. That's clearly still true today. And there is this useful reminder here, which is all these monthly reports we look at, they tend to be noisy. They tend to bounce around. And it is useful to just step back and not make too much of any one report. And that's certainly true with these numbers today.
1: All right. Thank you, Jacob.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys.
1: So, Alex, we've heard a lot in the last few weeks about the protests in Egypt. And we, like everyone else, have been following it closely. But we've been learning something this week about the Egyptian military that hasn't actually made the news that much. But it's important because it explains a lot about what's happening in the streets.
0: Namely, why the military has been so incredibly peaceful. You know, you think of the situation of repressive regime, people out in the streets protesting, the military coming out in force and tanks. You figure, I know how this story ends gunshots, bloodshed, like in Tiananmen Square or Iran or Myanmar. But in Egypt, it's been sort of the opposite. In fact, there's that Famous picture out there of the military guy hugging one of the protesters. And there's been nothing like that brutal repression that we've seen other places.
1: Right. And earlier in the week, the explanation for this was that, you know, the army is compulsory service in Egypt. If you're a man between a certain age, you have to serve. So for the most part, the soldiers identify with the protesters.
0: And in fact, earlier this week, the military came out with the statement saying, you know, we stand with the people and we support your right to peaceful protest. I actually got a little choked up reading that letter. I actually did.
1: I know you did. Yeah. You know what, though, Alex? Yes. I'm about to burst your hippie kumbaya bubble.
0: It won't be the first time.
1: All right. You know, it's not actually just that the Egyptian military is a bunch of peace-loving softies. They actually have another reason to stand with the people. It's very important. The people are their customers.
3: We are talking about virtually every industry in the country.
0: This is Robert Springborg. He's a professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in California, and he's a big expert on Egypt. He first visited Egypt in 65. He ran a business there. He's written a bunch of books about Egypt in the Middle East. And he's an expert on all the bizarre businesses that the Egyptian military runs.
3: Car assembly. We're talking of clothing. We're talking of uh, construction of roads, highways, bridges. We're talking... Uh, of pots and pans. We're talking of kitchen appliances. You know, if you buy a, uh, an appliance, a uh, good chance is that it's manufactured by the military. If you have, uh, don't have natural gas piped into your house and you have to have a gas bottle, the gas bottle will have been manufactured by the military. Some of the foodstuffs that you will be eating will have been grown and or uh, processed uh, by the military. So uh, there's almost no area of the economy in which they are not active.
1: So imagine, Alex, if that was here, your dishwasher brought to you by the Marines. The few, the proud, the spotless. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or if you have bottled water, I guess the Navy would make that for you?
0: I mean, clearly, right? Yeah, so it's crazy. And Springbrook says that the reasons for this arrangement in Egypt, they go back to the 60s and 70s, when the Egyptian military was really large as a result of all the wars that Egypt was fighting with Israel. And after the peace treaty with Israel was signed, there wasn't this need for such a large fighting force. But people worried, you know, that you release all those young men from military service and suddenly they're flooding the job market. So the military basically transformed itself from a fighting force to a hiring force, essentially. And some of the businesses it got into were pretty far away from its traditional mission. For example, the military had all these forces stationed on the coast
3: peace treaty with Israel comes, and the question is, okay, what are we going to do with this military zone that is huge uh, and in the most desirable part of the country? And has
0: extremely beautiful beaches. (laughs) And has
3: extremely beautiful beaches and some of the greatest coral uh, 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 growth, coral reefs in the world, uh, and was absolutely crying out for touristic development. So the military controlling it struck deals with private developers, whereby the private developers would get access to land and, and the military, meaning officers within it, would obtain shares of the, uh, the enterprises. So uh, military officers are large shareholders of touristic development up and down the beaches of Egypt.
1: And that exists even today.
3: Of course. And you as a private citizen can rent them, as a matter of fact. You, you can lease from the military some of these resorts that it runs, uh, whether in Cairo or on the beach, uh, because they're, they're for-profit enterprises with regard to uh, the private sector of the economy. But for a military officer, I, I haven't stayed in one recently. But I, I used to do business with them because I'd rent rooms from them to uh, run conferences because they were the, they were much cheaper than let's say renting from the Hilton Hotel. But an officer could uh, have a very nice suite uh, for an evening. For at that stage, it was uh, ten pounds or about three um, dollars. So
0: how do the military hotels stack up against, say, the Hilton?
3: They're not quite as good. Uh, uh, these are, they're they're let's say four star not five star, typically. Uh, they're they're not as luxurious as let's say the Four Seasons or, or the Grand Hyatt, uh, but they're pretty good. They've got their pools and their tennis courts, uh, so they're they're a, a little cut down. But hey, look at uh, not so bad.
0: So in other words, the military, it got out of the hostility industry and it got into the hospitality industry and a whole bunch of other industries as well.
1: No one knows just how much of the Egyptian economy is made up by military businesses. Some estimates put it at 30 or even 40 percent. But whatever the size, it brings in a lot of money. Think about it this way. If you've seen photos of the minister of defense socializing with the protesters, he's wearing his military uniform. But don't think of him as an army man. Think of him as a businessman.
3: The, the head of all of this is Tantawi, the minister of defense. He's mm-hmm. the CEO of Military Inc. in Egypt.
1: Uh, say, say that again. So the CEO
0: of Military Inc.
3: Yeah, this Incorporated. Is, this is my turn. This uh-huh. is, you know, he runs – he controls all these military enterprises. Uh-huh. General Tantawi, Field Marshal Tantawi, minister of defense Tantawi, spends more of his day by inside accounts working on business matters than he does on military matters. Kantawi's job is to hand is to make sure there are plums to hand out, and then to allocate the plums to ensure the loyalty of the of the officer corps as a whole particular individuals.
1: We actually talked to a guy who's pretty familiar with this allocation process. His name is Safi Ahmed, and he's a professor of environmental planning at Chatham University in Pittsburgh. But before he came to Pittsburgh, he lived in Egypt until he finished his undergraduate degree. And many of his friends still live in the country. And several of them served as officers in the Egyptian military. And when they retired, they got some plums.
3: One of my friends, for instance, is a CEO of um, the Water and Sewer Authority. Wow. Another person went to uh, to To lead a tourism development authority and um, another uh, a governor of one of the provinces it 's a reward for someone who spent all his career uh, serving the uh, the country
0: and the point of all this is that once you understand that this is how the military operates in Egypt, it helps you understand the protests there in two key ways so first. Why is there all this hugging? <laughs> Why haven't there been any orders so far to shoot? And the reason is if, if there was a shot fired and the protests actually devolved into some sort of full-scale civil conflict, fewer people would buy dishwashers or bottled water or spend their vacations at Red Sea resorts, which the military controls.
3: The last thing it wants is instability or war. The military wants stability above all. Uh, the military is most <laughs> – it's not able to operate the equipment it has. Uh, You know, it's not focused on war fighting; It's focused on consumption.
1: The second thing that understanding the way the military operates in Egypt explains, and this is a big one, it helps explain what's likely to happen next. This is the biggest question in Egypt right now. If President Mubarak steps down, who's going to take his place? There are a couple of people in the running. There's Mubarak's new vice president. He's the former head of military intelligence forces. He's formerly known as one of the world's most powerful spy chiefs. And then there's a civilian, Mohamed al the Nobel Peace Prize winner.
0: And this is where the military leadership might differ from the protesters in the street. The people in the street, for the most part, want a democratic election where they can pick whoever they want to run the country. But the military, they don't really want a civilian like Al-Baradei to take power.
3: In this current situation, uh, the, the, the military has got to uh, defend its interests to make sure that no civilian ever gets any power that could be used to force the military to reveal what it's doing. And that's why Baraday and these people have no chance, because the military will not allow them any sort of command or control position over themselves. Uh, and that's what's at stake here. So uh, the military and, and Mubarak uh, have an overlapped interest at the present time, but with further pressure then the military uh, will, of course, d- decide that Mubarak is expendable. So Mubarak, you you
0: imagine that if the protests continue, Mubarak will go. But the system which he has come to personify in the minds of the protesters, that's not going anywhere.
3: Absolutely. And that was the critical thing because many of the the key people around Baraday uh, know far more about what I'm talking about than I do. Uh, And they uh, want the military out, out, out. Uh, But, you know, this is a very hard thing to do because it's a subject that cannot be spoken about publicly. They cannot say this. Uh, because the military will go after them immediately, and up until 10 days ago they would have lost their job and so on had they you know, made any case of this sort at all. But this is what they think, because I know these people and talk to them. Um, and so they like it, but it's a very sensitive issue because the army has retained its popularity. And so how do you try to bring civilian control of the military? And you cannot have democracy in the absence of civilian control of the military uh... in that circumstance uh... and it's basically softly softly so it's a sort of a uh... you know the mongoose and the cobra uh... between the military and these sorts of people
0: so caitlin there's this one indication that the military won't be a huge force in the egyptian economy forever no matter who's in power And this indication comes from WikiLeaks, of all places. One of the cables that was released in that huge WikiLeaks dump was a diplomatic cable from 2008 that was written by the American ambassador in in Cairo. And in this cable, it said, one of the major threats to the army's power over Egyptian society is not El Barade, is not the people, but is in fact the Marriott or Coca-Cola or GE. In other words, economic competition.
1: The Cable summarizes a conversation that the U.S. ambassador in Cairo had with a bunch of Egyptian professors about the Egyptian military and its role in the economy. And the conversation talked about how as the Egyptian economy opens up and more private enterprises take hold, the military will be under more pressure to compete.
0: And actually, one of the professors is quoted in the cable as saying, you know, quote, privatization has forced military-owned companies to improve the quality of their work, specifically in the hotel industry. And then another of the professors goes on to predict that, quote, the growing power of the economic elite at the military's expense is inevitable.
1: In other words, once the real bottled water distributors and kitchenware manufacturers show up, the military will be forced out of business no matter who's in power.
0: As always, we would love to hear your thoughts about today's show. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Caitlin Kenny.
0: And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you for listening
1: i